An Atheist Responds to a Christian, Part 2 Previously on The Week in Doubt. Just kidding. Always wanted to say that. Uh, anyway, uh, last week in Part 1, I tackled the first two questions on our Christian friends list. Why can't we create a rainbow indoors and why were there lunar eclipses last year on Jewish holidays or festivals? I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist. Granted, from the point of view of a skeptic who fully embraces modern science, these questions were relative softballs. But nevertheless, they were still fun to research and discuss. And just to catch you up in case you missed the first installment, a Christian reached out to me on YouTube, and included in their comment was a long list of questions which I assume were meant to challenge what I referred to as the atheistic worldview. So I decided I would address their questions in a multi-part series entitled An Atheist Response to a Christian. Two quick corrections before we begin this week's episode. Last week I was discussing the Jewish calendar, and through the not-so-magical process of editing, I accidentally edited out the Rosh and Rosh Chodesh, meaning uh, in Hebrew, the head of the month, similar to how Rosh Hashanah means the head of the new year. Uh, and in the final product, it, it just came out as Chodesh, so perhaps a bit confusing or uh, misleading. Secondly, I lightheartedly referenced the name of the site I was reading from and referred to it as Jewfact.com. It's technically Jewfact.org. My mistake. And as I mentioned, it's actually a pro-Jewish site, for lack of a better uh, term, with lots of helpful information on Judaism. But I was uh, struck by the name at first. So on to this week's first question. Why are children indoctrinated with the theory of evolution and the heliocentric theory before they learn math? So you can tell by the way the question is couched that the person doesn't seem to approve of the concept of evolution or the heliocentric model. Uh, heliocentrism, as you probably already know, is simply the idea, or dare I say the fact, that the earth revolves around the sun, not vice versa. So the use of the word quote-unquote indoctrinate seems to imply that evolution and heliocentrism aren't based in fact and that they're spurious notions that children must be conditioned to accept at an early age before their critical thinking skills start to fully flower. Which is somewhat ironic since that's how we non-believers tend to view religion, as these bundles of false information and superstitious faith claims that need to be ingrained at an early age in order to really take hold. But I guess first we have to establish whether or not what this person is saying is true. I'm not saying that they're uh, lying. They actually seem like a fairly trustworthy and honest person. Um, we just need to figure out if... What they're saying is accurate. Are children being taught heliocentrism and evolution prior to being taught mathematics? As someone who fully embraces or accepts these ideas, it wouldn't bother me one iota if this were in fact the case. But is it the case? Now, before I stop to research the topic, I'm going to guess that the age at which children are introduced to these concepts academically probably varies from place to place. So I'm back through the magic of editing. I scoured the web using queries like at what age is evolution taught to children? 
evolution taught in elementary school and evolution taught before math. And I really didn't find anything to support the person's claim uh, that children are being taught evolution and heliocentrism before math. I'm not saying that there's not articles to the contrary out there. I just personally had trouble finding them. And once again, even if this were the case, it wouldn't bother me. Quite the opposite. But anyway, I did find a plethora of articles discussing mathematics being taught at a very early age. A good deal of the search results actually had to do with the turbulent history of trying to teach evolution in the classroom in the States. There's been an ongoing clash in this country between religion and science and what should or shouldn't be taught in the classroom. That goes at least as far back as the famous Scopes monkey trial. And it's not just the States. I asked my friend across the pond, Russ Ray, at what age do children in the UK first learn about evolution? He told me that for his kids, it might have been around age 10 or 11, maybe. And for himself, he couldn't even really recall being taught anything about evolution in school. And here's a bit of what Russ had to say. I know it should now be 10 or 11 from what I've just read, but I'm pretty sure there was mention earlier. It could all change soon if this damned government gets its way and has all schools become academies. That means they choose their own curriculum, etc., and lots of them are funded by particularly religious people. And Russ provided me with a couple of links uh, one is on Sir Peter Vardy, it looks like. I seem to have a knack for mispronouncing all things uh, British, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm butchering this guy's name or not. But he's a, a businessman and philanthropist, and it talks about how he's funded the building of a college and three academies. It says these four schools form the Emanuel Schools Foundation, a coalition of schools with a Christian ethos based in the north of England. And then to uh, back up his point about all UK schools possibly becoming academies, he uh, provided me with another link. This one's from the BBC. Every school to become an academy, ministers to announce. And this is uh, from uh, recently. This is from March 15th, 2016. Plans to, fur and I don't know if this is all the UK, but uh, it seems it's re referring to England specifically here. Plans to force all schools in England to become academies are to be outlined in the budget on Wednesday. The Department for Education is expected to publish draft legislation as early as Thursday, BBC Newsnight has learned. The move would end the century-old role of local authorities as providers of education. But I'll stop there before we get too far off topic. And I want to say thanks again to Russ. He's a very patient and good-natured person, and he went out of his way to answer my question regarding evolution in English classrooms, even though I had inconveniently pestered him while he was going about his morning ritual and trying to get his family up and going. I'm reminded of a segment from a Richard Dawkins television series. Maybe it was from The Genius of Charles Darwin. I forget. But Dawkins is standing before a classroom of what looks like English high school students. Don't know if you guys have high school or not, uh, but they looked about that age, maybe early to mid-teens, and they were just painfully ignorant in regard to evolution, and most of them were quite resistant to the concept, choosing instead to lean or fall back on their religious upbringing. And all of this just reminded me of my own experience 
being taught biology in the um, public school system. I can't remember if it was late middle school or early high school, but we had this one teacher and he was a, he was a really nice guy, but he was literally morbidly obese. I don't know if I should name him, but what the hell? His name was Mr. Barzak, a gigantic man with like a big reddish brown beard. And I can remember, I don't think we learned much about evolution at all, but we did have to memorize the parts of a cell and things like that. And it's kind of funny, given the guy's immense girth, that his homework assignment to help us display our knowledge or lack thereof of the anatomy of a cell was that we had to bring in a bait good that was shaped like a cell. So people are bringing in big like sheet cakes and cupcakes and things all, you know, with little Golgi bodies and vacuoles and whatnot, mitochondria, <laughs> you know, drawn with uh, frosting or, or uh, piping gel or whatever it is. I think I might recall at least one licorice flagellum too. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, so my own anecdotal experience, I really don't remember being taught much about evolution. We were taught about things like classification, you know, genus, uh, phylum. Um, there was even the dissecting of frogs and things like that, which I think I might have tried to square my way out of. Uh, but evolution, I don't remember a lot of talk about evolution, actually. And I want to say on behalf of my interlocutor uh, or my opponent that in fairness, it might be the case that some children get exposed to things like the theory of evolution or the heliocentric model at an early age, maybe even just in passing in the classroom, because they're accepted facts, uh, although I'm sure you might disagree, and they might get mentioned tangentially when discussing other topics. But I stumbled upon an interesting EDU site that discusses the history of court cases dealing with evolution in the classroom. It's from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and I'd like to read a bit from it. So the page specifically is law2.umkc.edu, and it's entitled Exploring Constitutional Conflicts, the Evolution Controversy. The issue, what restrictions does the First Amendment place on the ability of states and school boards to restrict the teaching of evolution or encourage the teaching of quote-unquote creation science in the public school classrooms? And I might be getting a bit off topic with the um, specific subject of the legality of uh, teaching creation science, etc., but I, I think it's still relevant or germane to the conversation and uh, I just find it personally interesting and uh, edifying, so here we go. Conflict between science and religion began well before Charles Darwin published Origin of the Species. Um, unless I'm missing something, should that be on the origin of species or origin of species? Maybe it's a typo or the name of an earlier draft or version or something, I don't know. But anyway, onward. Actually, wait, now I have to know. So look it up quickly. The original title of the work is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Well, in the sixth edition of 1872, the title was changed to The Origin of Species. I think this article referred to it as The Origin of the Species. So uh, probably just a typo, I guess. But anyway... 
The most famous early controversy was the trial of Galileo in 1633 for publishing Dialogue, a book that supported the Copernican theory that the Earth revolved around the Sun, rather than, as the Bible suggests, the other way around. The so-called Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 concerning enforcement of a Tennessee statute that prohibited teaching the theory of evolution in public school classrooms was a fascinating courtroom drama featuring Clarence Darrow dueling with three-time presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. However, entertaining the trial in Dayton, Tennessee was, it did not resolve the question of whether the First Amendment permitted states to ban teaching of a theory that contradicted religious beliefs. And I want to say that I went out of my way last week to make part one as short and concise as possible, because I'm being told more and more <laughs> by people on YouTube that they prefer kind of shorter, bite-sized content. But I can already tell part two is going to be a long one, so sit back and relax. Uh, but anyway, I'll continue. Not until 1968 did the Supreme Court rule in Epperson versus Arkansas that such bans contravened the Establishment Clause because their primary purpose is religious. The court used the same rationale in 1987 in Edwards v. Aguilard to strike down a Louisiana law that required biology teachers who taught the theory of evolution to also discuss evidence supporting the theory called quote-unquote creation science. The controversy continues in new forms today. In 1999, for example, the Kansas Board of Education voted to remove evolution from the list of subjects tested on state standardized tests, in effect encouraging local school boards to consider dropping or de-emphasizing evolution. In 2000, Kansas voters responded to the proposed change by throwing out enough anti-evolution board members to restore the old science standards. But by 2004, a new conservative school board majority was proposing that intelligent design be discussed in science classes. In 2006, the Kansas tug-of-war continued, with pro-evolution moderates again retaking control of the board. In 2005, attention shifted to Dover, Pennsylvania, where the local school board voted to require teachers to read a statement about intelligent design prior to discussions of evolution in high school biology classes. So I know 2005 is a little over a decade ago, but in the grand scheme of things, not all that long ago. And right here, I mean, we're not talking about indoctrinating kids into believing in evolution, you know, at a, at, before learning mathematics. We're talking about high school here. And uh, even trying to teach children evolution in high school is controversial, uh, still is uh, for many, I reckon. Eleven parents of Dover students challenged the school board decision, arguing that it violated the Establishment Clause. After a six-week trial, U.S. District Judge John E. Jones issued a 139-page finding of fact and decision in which he ruled that the Dover mandate was unconstitutional. Judge Jones' decision was surprisingly broad. He concluded that ID is not science, and that's in quotes, but rather is a religious theory that had no place in the science classroom. Jones found three reasons for his conclusion that intelligent design was a religious and not a scientific theory. First, he found ID violated, in quotes here, the self-imposed convention of the scientific method by relying upon a supernatural explanation for a natural phenomenon rather than the approach favored in science, testability. 
Wow, I really like this judge. Second idea is based on the same, quote-unquote, contrived dualism as creation science, namely its suggestion that every piece of evidence tending to discredit evolution confirms intelligent design. Jones found ID's, in quotes once again, irreducible complexity argument to be a, quote-unquote, negative argument against evolution, not proof of design. Finally, Jones concluded that the expert testimony offered by the defendants in support of ID, generally relating to irreducible complexity, had been refuted in peer-reviewed research papers. The decision of Judge Jones in Kitzmiller v. Dover, 2005, is available online. That provides a link. Conflicts between science and religion will not end anytime soon. In the future, legal conflicts between science and religion can be expected over theories such as the Big Bang, which also undermines fundamentalist beliefs about creation. And there's kind of a, an opinion section here entitled Prof's Prerogative. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's entitled Facts Are Stubborn Things by Douglas O. Linder. It is hardly surprising that Darwin's theory of evolution should meet with such resistance. We encounter an idea that comforts us, an account like Genesis 1, that establishes our specialness and asks, Can I believe it? We consider a thing that troubles us, a process like evolution that seems chance-driven and dethrones us from our special place in the universe, and ask instead, Must I believe it? Evolution suggests that our species, if not quite an accident, is an extreme improbability and most likely one whose time is limited on life's continuing and circuitous journey to an undetermined destination. Must we believe it? Darwin knew that many people raised to believe in miracles or magic would find his theory hard to swallow. In his autobiography, he noted that as a young man on the HMS Beagle, he had written in his journal of the higher feelings of one admiration and devotion that would fill and elevate his mind. He lamented that now, older and wiser, believing in evolution and disbelieving in God, even the grandest scenes evoked no powerful feelings. I am like a man that has become colorblind. Publishing his theory, he said, felt like confessing a murder. And I want to break for a minute there to say that um, I temporarily went through something similar. You know, when I kind of closed the door on my faith, and I've explained many times on the show how I was raised Catholic, and from a young age, I found myself wrestling with the big existential questions. Is there really a God? Is there really an afterlife? Things like that. And then the more I read about things like ancient history, uh, comparative religion, mythology, etc., the more... I came closer and closer to the conclusion that religions are basically just man-made belief systems and um, that there really wasn't any conclusive evidence to my disappointment and despair to back up things like the, the belief in a higher power and an afterlife. To this day, I still admit readily that I don't know for certain that those things don't exist, but I feel like I have very good reasons to doubt that they exist. And I did go through a kind of long, dark night of the soul where I could no longer believe, but at the same time, the idea of life in the absence of a creator or the promise of an afterlife seemed absolutely horrifying. And it filled me with this kind of black dread or despair. 
the idea that there very well might not be any divine plan and that when we die, when our loved ones die, it simply lights out. It really did fill me with this overwhelming uh, dread and despair, as I said. But then, you know, I, I think the the human mind or the human spirit, and I'll use that term uh, figuratively, is very resilient. And like it or not, we do seem to eventually return to, you know, <laughs> uh, a kind of psychological homeostasis or equilibrium. And uh, eventually, I did reach a point again where even though as I do now, I strongly doubt the existence of things like a higher power or an afterlife. I still feel like life is full of wonder and full of rich and vivid experiences. And even if there is nothing after this, it doesn't change the fact that I do have a moral compass. Uh, my opponent would probably say that moral compass is God-given. I think it's uh, most likely part evolutionary byproduct and perhaps part uh, cultural. But I do think, I do readily admit that I think we're wired partly for things like tribalism and violence. We're also wired for things like compassion, group solidarity, altruism, uh, empathy, etc. Uh, and we can see what they call proto-ethics in the animal kingdom. And uh, there's many examples of animal altruism. Uh, and there's also, to be fair and balanced, uh, a lot of examples of nightmarish cruelty in it and indifference in the natural world as well. But for me, even if it is temporary, life does have meaning. And just because there might not be a god or an afterlife doesn't mean we have to devolve into some Mad Max post-apocalyptic nightmare where it's every man for himself. Uh, and we go about marauding, raping, and killing or whatever. No, we're, we're still creatures with a moral compass. Creatures who, like I said, not to be redundant, do seem at least partly wired for things like empathy and altruism. Um, and I think one of the greatest and most rewarding pleasures of life is uh, connecting with other people and, and uh, sharing a sense of solidarity. So, you know, th that's my stance on it. So, I actually can relate to Darwin talking about how once he moved from being a believer to someone who embraced his, you know, his theory of evolution, that he felt like life was stripped of its magic and it lost its sense of color or wonder. And, and I did experience that, but for me, it was temporary. Um, and life doesn't have to be that way. You'd, life doesn't have to lose its magic just because you doubt the existence of a higher power or an afterlife, or because you doubt the supernatural claims of what seem to me to obviously be man-made belief systems. But I'll continue. When Williams Jennings Bryan took on evolution in a courtroom in Tennessee in 1925 in the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, he acknowledged that he did not fully understand the theory of evolution, but said that he fully understood the theory's dangers and misuse, how it threatened to leave students feeling lost in an uncaring universe, how it could lead to sterilization of the abnormal and diminished concern for the survival of the unfit, Brian cheerfully ignored the evidence for evolution, explaining, I would rather begin with God and reason down than begin with a piece of dirt and reason up. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, feel that way. And I think it should be the facts and the truth that do the deciding, uh, not 
what you want to be true. And uh, I'll continue. And, and this is the author of this little kind of op-ed piece speaking. I believe in the theory of evolution, not because I, <laughs> hey, great minds, not because I want to, but because I feel I must. And because unlike Brian, I find it hard to reason in one direction or another. Creationists have offered one objection after another. The immune system is too complex to have, to have evolved. Evolution could never produce an eye because... What use is half an eye? And that's laughable, and I don't feel like I need to explain that right now. But maybe I will anyways. The eye evolved over time gradually from, from what was probably little more than a rudimentary eye spot into the complex mammalian eye that you're probably looking out of right now, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube. So it's not like the eye was literally built half at a time under construction with uh, little pieces of scaffolding around it or something. It became more and more complex, building off of a rudimentary model. And I'll continue. And each has been answered as the confirming fossil and DNA evidence piles up, as the theory of evolution reveals itself to be a powerful tool for both explaining the imperfections of species and accounting for transitional species, it becomes ever more difficult to believe in the pleasing creation stories told in Genesis. And I'm glad they said stories because there's actually an example of what's known as a doublet in Genesis regarding creation. Two somewhat differing accounts of creation in the same what is supposedly divine book. And it says in Genesis and elsewhere, and of course, just about every unique culture has its own creation myth. And there is some cross-pollination. Some cultures borrowed from other cultures, an example being that, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which the Genesis story, specifically the flood narrative, seems to uh, mirror, uh, predates um, the Old Testament. And then it goes on, uh, facts, as John Adams reminds us, are stubborn things. Whether 20 years or 200 years from now, the accumulating evidence will become so overwhelming that evolution will be as accepted as the sun-centered solar system is today. Heliocentrism. <laughs> but anyway, our challenge is to accept evolution while maintaining a sense of wonder. And I mean, that's beautifully put, and he pretty much summarized what I was trying to get at with three or four meandering uh, paragraphs there. But anyway, our challenge is to accept evolution while maintaining a sense of wonder, concern for those whose survival is beyond their own means, and a vision of a colorful and surprise-filled world. And underneath it says, this essay appeared in the New York Times um, on August 15th, 2013. And then it gives these numbered kind of explanations of evolution and how we kind of know evolution is a matter of fact. It says, one, evolution, the transformation over a long period of time from one species into another is a fact as well established as any other fact in the world of science. What theory of evolution is the best explanation for how the transformation occurs remains a matter of some dispute. Although fossil evidence sufficiently demonstrates the fact of evolution, even more compelling evidence today comes from DNA testing of species. In the future, most of our additional knowledge of evolution will come from what we can learn from DNA. To call evolution a quote-unquote theory says nothing about its ability to accurately explain facts observed in the world. The sun-centered solar system of Copernicus and Galileo is a theory. 
Then four, evolution is the central theory of biology. It is a powerful tool for explaining the presence of millions of fossils and other evidence, such as the fact that over 98% of the DNA of chimpanzees and humans is identical. Evolution is not, and this is five, evolution is not considered to be inconsistent with religious beliefs of most Christians or Jews. Most mainline Protestant denominations, the Catholic Church, and many other religious faiths accept the teaching of evolution. Then it goes on, virtually no first-rate biologists in the United States do not believe that life on Earth has developed through the process of evolution, starting with single-cell organisms. That ends with, uh, there are disputes about evolution as there are about almost any theory. And then uh, once again, on this guy, on the author's behalf, I'll say theory in the scientific sense, not meaning, hey, I got a wacky theory, but a, a theory um, something that's greater than a hypothesis, something that's been peer-reviewed, proven, etc. Example, most but not all biologists believe that evolution has not worked evenly throughout history. They believe that there have been periods of rapid evolutionary change, followed by long periods of relatively little evolutionary change. And if you guys aren't asleep yet, there was actually another article I found that I thought was relevant to the discussion. And it's from Newsweek. And my opponent, and I hate to call him that because we seem to have a very nice rapport, uh, but for lack of, you know, a nicer term, he obviously looks disfavorably on the idea of teaching young children evolution. But this article is entitled Why Evolution Should Be Taught to Younger Kids, and it's by Mary Carmichael, and it dates back to uh, 2009, and as I said, it's from Newsweek. Charles Darwin was famously reluctant to publish On the Origin of Species, which he did 150 years ago this week, and this article is dated specifically um, November 22nd, 2009. Fearing it would degrade people's religious convictions, he stalled on the manuscript for two decades, but he didn't shield his own children from the science he thought would harm adults. Instead, he enlisted them in his experiments. When they were babies, he scrutinized their faces like an anthropologist for his book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. Later, he assigned them to sprinkle bumblebees with flour and chase after the bugs. For a study of cross-pollination, harnessing the children's curiosity as a means of teaching them about nature while also discovering some things about it himself. What Darwin knew about kids should be obvious to anyone who has one. They make good amateur scientists. At age 3, 4, 5, 6, all they ask is, what's that and where did it come from? Says Colin Purrington, an evolutionary biologist at Swarthmore College and a father of two. So why, like Darwin the theorist, holding back his book, and unlike Darwin the dad letting his kids loose in the lab that is the world, are so many parents and teachers loath to give kids straight scientific answers about natural selection? What's that? It's a bird. And where did it come from? The correct and interesting answer is from a dinosaur that was well adapted to changing conditions millions of years ago. But in a lot of schools, kids are just as likely to hear from the sky. I think a lot of people believe that if we can get evolution taught well in high school, we should just be happy with that, because teaching it in middle school will bring angry parents out of the woodwork, says Purrington. As for elementary school, that's a line almost no one wants to cross. 
Even parents and teachers who have no religious objection to evolution often balk at sharing the concept with young kids. Some of them say it's too complex to explain to kids who are still learning the basics. I think there's a perception by teachers that evolution is horribly hard to teach, says Purrington. There's a fear that if they don't have an advanced degree in biology, they'll get something wrong. And yet all science is complicated. Untangling the thicket for children is what teachers are supposed to do. If anything, that's a harder task if teachers don't allow themselves to talk about the founding principle of life science, the theory that explains and underlies nearly everything about the field. Perhaps a bigger issue is that evolution is more than just complicated, it's brutal. It's not a nice, cuddly theory, says Paul Horowitz, senior scientist at the Concord Consortium, an educational think tank. It's a theory where an awful lot of organisms have to die for things to work. Like Darwin fretting over the delicate minds of his readers, a lot of parents worry about survival of the fittest, is well, unfit for young ears. Another baseless objection, says supporters of early evolution education. Only the most cloistered, coddled child isn't already exposed to competition and its rewards in the course of daily life. Kids compete at school, on the playground, at home with siblings, says Kate Miller, creator of the Charlie's Playhouse line of evolution-focused educational toys. They just get natural selection intuitively. When my kids' eyes light up at the strangeness and beauty of the evolution of life, I get goosebumps, she says. You may get some too reading about her children's personal discovery of the theory. Stick a child in front of a bird feeder for long enough and he may just figure things out for himself. So for the sake of time, I'll stop reading the article there, but it does continue. So I focused a lot on evolution, but he was also concerned about heliocentrism. So, um, oh, I want to read a brief excerpt from Wikipedia on the subject. The notion that the Earth revolves around the sun has been proposed as early as the 3rd century BC by Aristarchus of Samos. But at least in the post-ancient world, Aristarchus's heliocentrism attracted little attention, possibly because of the loss of scientific works of the Hellenistic era. It was not until the 16th century that a geometric mathematical model of a heliocentric system was presented by the Renaissance mathematician, astronomer, and Catholic cleric Nicholas Copernicus, leading to the Copernican Revolution. In the following century, Johannes Kepler elaborated upon and expanded this model to include elliptical orbits, and Galileo Galilei presented supporting observations made using a telescope. With the observations of William Herschel, Frederick Bessel, and others, astronomers realized that the sun was not the center of the universe, as heliocentrists at the time of Copernicus had supposed. Modern thinking is that there is no specific location that is the center of the universe, per Albert Einstein's principle of relativity. Okay, so at this point I want to say that as I work my way down this person's list of claims and questions, and as I continue to engage with them, I'm beginning to get a clearer picture of their worldview. The person in question isn't only a devout Christian, but they also embrace, and this is from them directly, the idea of a flat earth and that there's a firmament a kind of a celestial dome that surrounds the earth. And I don't mention this to disparage or embarrass the person. I actually appreciate how kind and civil they've been. I'm just trying to put things into context. And the fact that they believe in a dome enclosed flat earth helps to explain the nature of some of their questions. For instance, the question concerning the nature of rainbows and the interest in heliocentrism. 
And I just wanted to mention on a somewhat related note that it, that I was really taken aback by just how passionate online flat earthers are, especially here on YouTube. Armored Skeptic and Stefan Molyneux have both done videos debunking the flat earth concept and adherents of the theory did not take kindly. They can be pretty ferocious. So once again, I'd like to thank my opponent for being so uh, polite and civil. All right, so I think I have time to take on one more question from their list. Do you not know there is a fourth dimension unperceivable to humans? Well, my first response would be, I did not know that. Uh, but on a serious note, there are many things in nature that can't be perceived by the naked human eye. Things outside the visual spectrum, like x-rays and radio waves. But a fourth dimension, I've heard of uh, four-dimensional space, a term used in mathematics. I've heard of space and time together as space-time, referred to as a four-dimensional continuum. Space consisting of three dimensions, and then time being the fourth but I'm not sure in what sense my opponent is using the term. Then there are a number of books that address a fourth dimension. Here's a synopsis of a book simply entitled The Fourth Dimension by a mathematics professor named Rudy Rucker. The Fourth Dimension guides you on a mind-expanding journey. The book is designed to alter the reader's perception on the universe through the exploration of a fourth dimension, a fourth spatial dimension rather than the simpler notion of time as a fourth dimension. The information gives the reader a much better understanding of the concept of higher dimensions, whose existence must be presumed in order to complete some of the mathematical equations of quantum mechanics. But I'm honestly not sure what the person, that is my opponent, is trying to get at. How does a theoretical fourth dimension prove the existence of a god, let alone the god of the Bible specifically? But uh, I'm going to call it quits there. And I think I'm going to make part three the final part in my An Atheist Response to a Christian series. And I might try to do An Atheist Attempts to Beat the Clock type of thing <laughs> where I try to just as quickly as I can run through the rest of the list. Okay, um, but thanks for listening, guys. And once again, this has been an atheist response to a Christian part two.